Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. Let the ants try, by Frederick Pohl. It's a uh, first was first published in Planet Stories in winter 1949, under the name James McRae instead of Frederick Pohl. Um, later on, he would take credit for it. I'm not sure why he decided not to use his real name. Maybe he was busy editing his own magazine <laughs> and didn't want to give credit. I'm not sure, but um, I, uh, I know I, I'm sure I'd seen this story before in some collection, but um, I really like Frederick Pohl's writing, especially this. This is terrific, terrific story, and um, very resonant with other SF, but uh, you know, like time travel stories and stuff like that but what what's so special to me about it i think is it's purity <laughs> it it's so pure um for what it i think it's doing and um that that makes it special hmm. i mean it's uh, that's it's, an interesting concept um l- let me ask since you say that it fits in with things um do you think in its purity uh, that it's a pure example of a particular genre or yeah it's so well focused or what i ask because it's when you said i i feel like i've read it somewhere else there is the reference to hg wells and oh yeah and one of wells's more famous stories which is saying something is empire of the ants Mm mm-hmm um, I mean, I, he, Wells gets the shout out that the name of the story that Wells is famous for, um, other than Empire of the Ants, um, the time machine, he gets a shout out in here, but, um, yeah. uh, oh, it's not, it's not a pure time travel is what I'm thinking, but rather it's, it's pure science fiction, but it's not pure science fiction in the sense of it's hard SF because that's not what it is. But I was thinking why it works so well. And I think it's because, even though it's got a lot of, you know, anachronistic sort of things going on in it, and we might have some questions as to why the characters make the decisions that they do, um, what its job is, is to deliver us a certain conception of our place in the universe. (laughs) And I think it does that extremely well, and that is something best done by science fiction. And so that's what I mean by purity. Because it's it's a mutant story, it's a World War Three story, it's a uh it's a time travel story, but really what it is at its core is it's about our place in the universe. In especially in time, not in space. <laughs> the space travel in here is very minimal, you know, just a few kilometers away from wherever it starts. I guess there's a some mention of some travel to Washington and from California, right? But it's not really. It's 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 a spa- it's a time travel story rather than a space travel story. I think that's right. I I would suggest uh, that there are there there's another class of books besides science fiction that really addresses man's place in the universe, human humanity's place in the universe. Mhm. 
And that's sacred text, the Bible, for example. Sure, sure. And, and there are, I, to my mind, there are references to the Bible in this story. There are. That, some of which actually parallel identical references in Wells' The Time Machine. Mm. So uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about Fred Pohl um, before we get into the story more deeply, or should we just dive in? Jesse? You know, he's, uh, his impact on SF is so large that we could talk about him for a couple hours and <laughs> not exhaust, you know, any particular avenue. He starts a long time ago, <laughs> and he lived a long time um, and I encountered him first through uh, later novels, and and I I much appreciate this short stuff he did. And he was an editor. I mean, it's 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 just too big, really, for us to to get into. Okay. But um, he is he is uh, very close, if not in the top tier of SF authors, in my view. If he's I'm not actually because he was a friend of mine in a in a minor way. Um... And uh, so I am biased because <clears throat> I also know that he was a, a wonderful person um, besides being an outstanding writer and editor and agent for quite a while, um, getting other people's work placed even when he wasn't the editor. Uh, the, the credit he gives to C.M. Cornbluth shows that, I think. Um, yes. You know, his friendship with that guy who died very young and who they collaborated with uh, – you can feel the friend friendliness in their in their writing their joint writings that they like each other's ideas and that they like spending time bouncing the ideas across to each other um that that is that's something special too um and i, I, I never that. met him i'm sorry <laughs> you know yeah. but go for it you're right it's in this story isn't it <laughs> exactly exactly this story let me give a quick summary of it um, but the two, there are two main human characters, and although this is a story that ultimately um, shows how insignificant humanity is and how we can be wiped out, it's there's something kind of kind about the the attitude that these people have, these two men have, um, to the possibilities in the world and to each other. Mm-hmm. It's really quite lovely. Um, Empire of the uh, sorry, Empire of the Ants. Let the Ants Try opens, as you know, with um, Gordy surviving the three-hour war, even though Detroit didn't. He was on his way to Washington with his blueprints and models in his bag when the bombs struck. He had left his wife behind in the city, and not even a trace of her body was ever found. The children, of course, weren't as lucky as that. Their summer camp was less than 20 miles away and, unfortunately, in the direction of the prevailing wind. But they were not in any pain until the last few days of the month they had left to live. Gordy managed to fight his way back through the snarled, frantic airline controls to them, even though they knew that uh, they would certainly, even though he knew that they would certainly die of radiation sickness, and they suspected it, it was still a whole blessed week of companionship before the pain got too bad. And I think that sets the tone having to do with the friendship issue that you were raising, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there is ultimately going to be pain and, and death, but there's that blessed 
companionship beforehand, a reference to another kind of grace mm-hmm. and the time period that this story concerns itself with. Um, Gordy goes back, it's the year 1960, which puts it 11 years after the date of publication. Mm-hmm. Um, and presumably the third, the three-hour war has been an atomic war. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, um, most of humanity has been destroyed. However, it looks like humanity left to its own devices would be able to continue to live, except the radiation has created all kinds of other mutations. Um, Gordy winds up back in Detroit, setting up, taking over a house, finding a generator from the house he used to occupy, setting that up, and uh, starting a vegetable patch in a garden nearby. Not easy to expand, it turns out, because there's a kind of mutant grass growing in the area that prevents that. Um, He's out there working in his garden, and along comes, this is his name is Gordy Salvo, um, which sounds uh, Salva Salva Gordy, Doctor Salva Gordy. Thank you, Salva Gordy. And Salva is a Spanish diminutive for Salvador, which means savior. So he's a would-be Christ. Later mm. in the story, he is held aloft by two huge mutant, um, by a huge mutant uh, ant, by two of them. Um, so that he is hanging as if he were being crucified. I think that's not accidental. And uh, while he's working in his vegetable patch, call it a constrained Garden of Eden, if you like, where (laughs) the signs of sin are all around, um, a man comes up and talks behind him and says, you know, give me something to eat. Turns out that this man is named John Leteri, so John of the Earth, Mm. and perhaps there is this John who dies before Jesus does, as in John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ. Um, and they, they, in fact, set up a companionable home, um, working on getting the vegetables to go and so on. Uh, John recognizes him when he, when he hears his name, and it turns out that Salva Gordy had been a mathematician and physicist at Pasadena, presumably Caltech. Mm-hmm. And this fellow had been a student there. Who, he said, I've heard of you, but you, of course, hadn't heard of me. And he was a biologist. And working together, um, they, they, working together, they th- are hoping to do better. Well, what they find is that they really can't between the mutations of this and that and the other thing. But Salva Gordy the thing he was taking to Washington is basically a time machine. And they use it. They, they find these mutant ants. And these ants are described as being mutant in a way that would allow them to grow. Because unlike real ants today, instead of breathing, getting oxygenated through spiracles, little holes and tubes in the exoskeleton, they have lungs. These little tiny ants, they have lungs. And so they decide to use the time machine to go back 40 million years and give the ants a chance to develop. Maybe they think, certainly uh, Salva Gordy thinks, they will, they will, be there when humanity arises. They will see humanity, and they will 
they will befriend humanity. They will build an alternate civilization, not one built on competition, because they don't say this, but because ants, after all, live in a hive community. And, and they will give humanity a chance to survive, maybe even his own family. As you said, we have questions about how the story works with the choices they make. If, if you have a time machine and you want your family, maybe mm-hmm. you should just go back 40 years and spend time with your family. But uh, that's not what he does. He goes back 40 million years, 40 being the canonical number for death and rebirth in the Bible. Um, right? Uh, anyway, uh, you know, 40 days in the wilderness mm-hmm. and so on. They do go back, and they are immediately attacked by the, the ants. The ants kill John Letary. They capture Gordy. Um, Salva Gordy they study him when they first land they hear an animal being it sounds like killed off in the jungle Um, when he goes and escapes from the ants he runs toward where he hopes he will find his time machine Um, and then we find out that in fact it was he who had been killed there are two time machines the second trip has brought him back. And the last line is, as his panicky lungs filled with air for the last time, Gordy knew what animal had screamed in the depths of the coal measure forest. Mm. Which is a powerful ending. It's probably one that many people could foresee when they hear that animal scream. Mm. Um, but it's, even if you did foresee it, I don't know that you would foresee the interesting reuse of the word lungs mm. <laughs> what makes the ants that are found in Detroit so interesting and candidates for making the world better are their lungs. And instead of being friends to humanity, they, in fact, force a scream out of the panicky <laughs> lungs of Gordy. So um, I will remind you just quickly and then I will desist. When it says in Genesis that uh, Adam decides that she will be called Eve because she was the mother of all living, it comes from the Hebrew word Chava is uh, is, is sort of English for uh, for Eve. Um, it comes from the Hebrew word Hayah, which means to breathe. It's not that the Hebrews didn't know that the plants in the Garden of Eden were living things. They could watch them grow. But living meant specifically respiration. Mm -hmm. So Eve is the mother of all living because she is the mother of the things that breathe. The, The reuse of lungs from the beginning of the story to the end, it seems to me, is more subtle and subtly connected with a mythic notion of what human life is uh, so even if you catch the uh, foreshadowing of that scream off in the forest, I think Paul is writing better than that. Hmm. There is something blessed about the friendship between Salva and, and Terry uh, and, and John, and there is something blessed in wanting to hope that there will be amity that will allow humanity and his family to come about. But that's not the world we live in. Yeah. Uh, you, you got a lot going on there, and that's all good. Um, so uh, you're you're right about the ending. I did not catch the uh, 
I, I did not catch the second reference to lungs. Of course, you're absolutely right about that. Um, your uh, your um, description of the story is pretty, pretty solid. It's a very, actually, complex set of scenes, but they're all leading up to this ending. And that's, that's one of the reasons I, I'm saying it's you know so pure, is because it's all leading up to this ending. And yet... Um, uh, oh, and I want to pick up on some of the uh, the biblical stuff. Um, I, I'm just thinking about the way you framed it. Uh, Cain is explicitly called out, uh, you know, the killer of his brother. Um, the line is, he was like no other murderer since Cain. <laughs> um, because he's killed the human species, right? Um, and uh, the, um, the friend, John, he, uh, he says in a scene um in the planting of the uh the eight and i'm not sure what the number eight signifies exactly uh the eight queens and their uh, brood in the 40,000 year past um, million a uh, 40 40 you're right 40 million year past he says um this is this is nothing on except on the scale of the flood and he says no no that's not right I feel like God, <laughs> says John. Right. And then... And remember, the, the flood was 40 days. Right, know, so that's right. That's 40. Um, but uh, in, in thinking about Dr. Salvagordi, and I did pick up on his first name. Um, Salva uh, is just Spanish for save, right? As well as being short for Salvador. Um, he's a doctor and he's a teacher. And, of course, doctors are healers <laughs> and doctors are also teachers and uh, that's one one of the descriptions of Jesus and um, I think it's really important to pick up on all of these these religious uh, things in here because that's actually what I mean by this being a very pure science fictional story because this is a subversion of Jesus saves the world in a certain sense, in that mm-hmm. he tries to save the world, and in his actions, uh, you know, coming out of that cave, uh, in this case, he's coming out of the airplane and returning, and he goes back to his children, and he can't save them, and then he goes to someone else's house um, and wants to pay for it, and he can't find anybody to pay for it, and so what does he do? He just lives there and scrabbles in the garden and that doesn't work he he has this man who comes to him and says i'm hungry and when he looks at him uh he looks scary we know this because some of the animal look came out of his eyes when he heard uh our main character's name and that animal look is the look of a man who says i'm hungry i might have to eat you (laughs) because there's no food right and instead of becoming uh you know prey to to um this hungry man he becomes a friend to him he feeds him and then they go down into the basement (laughs) and what is it 14 hours later uh they come out um with the batteries fully charged on the time machine and have a plan to let the ants try not let the ants try as in let the ants uh try to get it all right but rather let the ants try to help us from doing what we did to ourselves 
and uh, there's so much, so much going on in that choice. You're right. Why doesn't he just go back in time, spend, spend time with his family? Why doesn't he go back in time and try to f- prevent the war? Well, actually, that's what he's doing, right? He's trying to prevent the war. And this this um, sequence, this is on page 68 in the top right-hand column, I think is really interesting. Because uh, you could just pass over it and thinking of it as like, this is just letting us sit with ideas. But no, this is this is the motivation for for why they did this particular choice with their time machine. For hatred, Gordy knew, started in the recoil from things that were different. A man's first enemy is his family. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Then he says, (laughs) for he sees them first, but he sides with them against the families across the way. And still his neighbors are his allies against the ghettos and Harlems of his town. And his town, to him, is the heart of the nation, and his nation commands life and death in war. For Gordy, there has there had been a buried hope, that's a beautiful line, a buried hope that a separate race would make a whipping boy for the passions of humanity, and that if there were struggle, it would not be between man and man, but between the humans and the ants. And uh, so he's, uh, they, they go back in time, play God, to try to make humans united against a common enemy that they can abuse. That's horrible. <laughs> and what happens when they come back to the future, they find that humans are gone, that the uh, Detroit that they recognize uh, still manufactures cars, they're just three-wheeled cars for ants. <laughs> um, and, in fact, they don't speak. They're silent. But they're just as intelligent as the humans. But they don't seem to have destroyed themselves. And so their plan to let the ants try and help man turns into, in those final lines, a plan to let the ants try their hand at living together peacefully on the earth and not destroying themselves in a nuclear war. And that is pretty awesome because this is, yeah, it's, it's got tons of mutant stuff in it, right? Which is honestly, it's kind of stupid. <laughs> we know we, we were, we were, we were worried about mutations. I was worried a lot about mutations. Um, and oh, I think a lot of people are still probably foolishly worried about mutations. Um, but I think uh, Poles uh, was smarter than I am, <laughs> in a certain sense, because he he's treating it kind of sillily. But this was a real worry. This is you know this is right after World War II, right after the bombs had been dropped. There are mutation mutations are real, but they don't tend to uh, make you into uh, uh, lungs have give ants lungs. Not in you know course of a couple of years and crabgrass that can't be uh stopped <laughs> you know it's not right. in a couple of years so that part's silly but what's not silly is that this story is trying to sort of undo the mythology that grips humanity which is to do with the creation of humans and what we've sort of done with our religious texts to tell ourselves a story about how things are and how things ought to be and how things began. 
And this is saying, no, 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 no. Because it's, it takes into account that over time, evolution happens. And over time, mutation happens. And over time, the earth will change. It, 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 when they go back 40,000 years ago, the air is humid, right? The earth is quivering, right? Everything is different. It's the same place, right? It's still the place that would be Detroit or whatever the equivalent there was, right? But it's, it's physically different in that the air is thicker, right? The, it's before the dinosaurs, right? It's, it's completely different. And yet, you know, they say it's before the dinosaurs, but that's that was already known to be false. I'm I'm really surprised that Paul got that. The dinosaurs are pretty much destroyed in the at 65 million years ago. It's it's that particular extinction, and they go back only 40 years. So uh, it, it's, it seems to me that there there's something wrong here. Yeah, he's not he's not he's not trying to do a an accurate reality version of science. What he's actually doing is it's it's really focused on this idea of evolution over time and so yeah. when i i think of the way he uses he actually delays telling us this this is a time travel story by quite a ways into the story right when we eventually are told what the device is and he sort of sneaks it in right he says it's a temporal displacement device or whatever um <laughs> and i can't explain it to you except in, in math right well, what, he, what, of course, you know, the men from Washington call it is a time machine. And they're going to use it as a quote-unquote weapon, right? That's the innovation that this story does. So if you look at a story, a later story like Ray Bradbury's A Sound of Thunder, which is, I think, 1953, it has similar elements. They go back in time, they step on a butterfly in dinosaur times, um, and then when they come back to the future the reality has changed, right? The guy who just won the election didn't win the election. It's somebody else. And words are spelled slightly differently, right? And that idea of, you know, time affecting the future, that story is, it's actually much more technically beautiful, like Bradbury's using his poetic skills, but it's, it's sort of intellectually stupider in a certain sense. It is. I agree. I think and, one of the... I'm sorry. No, go for it. Go for it. I think one of the things that's uh, that's uh, to be explicit about what you're raising here, uh, the notions, the, the thematic notions here, the questions that are raised are meant for us to actually ponder issues today or 1949. Right. In our day. Uh, is it in fact true that hatred begins with a recoil from the different? And that the family is the first enemy. Is it true that anything can be a weapon? Right. Uh, right. Th those are big assertions. They are significant in the understanding of the story and the way in which the characters decide to, to act and the way the plot works its way out. But the story can't, doesn't prove those things. It just raises them as important issues. Uh, the I think that's really good. What you're pointing out, but for example, by the comparison with Bradbury's Sound of Thunder, which is early 50s, um, this is 49, is that, that Paul may in fact have anticipated this. This story of the large mutant ants that are inimical to humanity mm -hmm. anticipates, again, by 
four or five years. Um, them, a very powerful right. B movie um, of mutant ants that come out of the, the sewers of uh, Los Angeles, where the nest has been, and uh, and attack human beings. The whole idea of using uh, mutation as a demonstration of the evil consequences of the technologization of war runs through popular culture at that point, and Paul is early on that. But it's also true that picking ants as the thing to be mutated has to do with, as in the movie Them, the notion that the communists are going to be the ones to get us. Mm -hmm. These these walk-in, lockstep, mindless cogs in one enormous inimical machine. And so this story is really, uh, it is pure in the sense of really asking us, where does grace come from mm. and can we preserve it? Um, but it's also a splendid step along the, uh, the, the intellectual history that shows itself in a number of powerful threads in popular culture. You're exactly right. There's, I've been doing a an analysis, a literary analysis of Star Trek episodes, and there's one uh, from Voyager uh, called "The Year of Hell." It's a two-parter, and here's my description of it: the year, uh, the Star Trek Voyager episode entitled "Year of Hell" sees an alien scientist endlessly trying to rethread time in an attempt to recreate an ideal empire that his time weapon had earlier partially destroyed. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens here, right? It, 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 it stopped, and it's, it's nipped in the bud in a way that makes us sort of question, question, question like, what are we doing? <laughs> are, 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 the, are, are the choices we're making good choices? And the thing is, is time machines are bullshit, right? So that's not what it's about, really. What it's about, really, is your impact on the world today has massive con consequences down the road. You cannot foresee them. So be careful what you do. That's basically all it is. Like, it, you know, like if you buy into that line about uh, uh, the neighbors are allies against the ghettos and the Harlems of his town, well... <laughs> that's horrible right yep and of course he's writing for a 1949 audience uh, clearly he's writing for a white audience yeah and the, the the you know the army doesn't get integrated until around this time where they can be united against a common enemy but we're still thinking you know oh it's the russians it's the chinese right this is the kind of thinking that will cause world war three right that is, it's still something we need to deal with today. Can't we all just get along? No, apparently we yeah. can't. There's there's people who are determined to use everything as a weapon. But we have to be careful. Yeah, we do. And, and Paul gives us two models. Mm -hmm. He gives us the model of the antagonism, the war that we start with ourselves, but that's faceless. Right. All mm -hmm. we see is the suffering of his children uh, and at one remove. Um, and then the actual companionability of a teacher and his student, mm -hmm. of two men working together in the garden. 
it's of the same period and reminiscent of Tolkien's Leaf by Niggle. Mm. That um, there is a hunger in the post-war period to believe that something is possible, that it can be graceful, even when we stare at the horrors we've just created. As that should have been the end. But in the hands of a, of a subtle artist, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.